once a year, Borski. Thank you for joining us. Sure. Happy to do so. I feel like I'm, I'm interviewing my grandfather right now. <laughs> That's what it feels like. So I understand you don't prefer to be uh, addressed as Monsignor Borski. You said you want to be addressed Father Borski. That's correct. I, I'll answer to either, um, but I'm more familiar with Father Borski when I was in the parish. So Okay. So See, you... Seems to be a little bit more informal. People know me, that kind of thing. To say Monsignor Borski is kind of like put me off a little bit on the pedestal or whatever. So, <laughs> but I'll answer to either. And you've been addressed as Father Borski for decades, like you, fifty-three years. <laughs> wow, fifty-three years. Yes, and that was nineteen sixty-seven mm -hmm. that you were ordained a priest. That's correct. And how long were you in the seminar, seminary before that? Well, I spent uh, four years uh, in college seminary here in Houston at St. Mary's. Uh -huh. And then I spent uh, four years in what we call our graduate theology seminary in Rome, which is called the North American College. So I spent eight years altogether in, in seminary formation. So that's over 60 years in religious life. That's correct. Yeah. That is amazing. I, I just have to, that just blows me away over 60 years. So I understand you grew up here in Texas? Grew up in the little town of Anderson, between Anderson and Navasota. Um, actually, I was born at home and delivered by a midwife back in 1941. So that's just what was happening in the rural areas of Texas. So I was born between Navasota and Anderson. Our parish was St. Stanislaus in uh, Anderson. And so actually I was baptized two days after I was born. So that was wow. just what the our parents would, were taught, that as soon as you can take the child in for baptism, uh, that's what they did. So I was baptized actually uh, on February the 28th. I was born on the February 26th. Wow. And that was just what the way it was done. You were that, born at home and you were baptized a couple of days later. Yeah, right at the parish church, right. Wow. And then these the town that you were born in and grew up in, that's kind of near College Station, isn't it? It's only about 12, 13, 14 miles from College Station. Are um, you an Aggie fan? I was, uh, yeah, oh yes, I'm an Aggie fan, but uh, actually I intended to go there for for my college, but I didn't end up there. I ended up in the seminary instead. So, But you grew up during the whole Bear Bryant era. Close by. Right? Wow. Wow, that's amazing. So you watched all of that unfold, and you, you were there during those, those years. Knew about them. Um, Jack Pardee, uh, John David Crow, uh, the Junction Boys, and when they went to Junction for their their uh, preparation before their season mm. that year. I forget what, what year it was, but yeah, was familiar with them. Wow. Are you a lifelong football fan? I like, I like sports. Uh -huh. um, I like football, basketball, uh, almost any sport. I played football and basketball in high school, plus I ran track. But uh, yeah, I, I'm interested in sports, still am today. Um, so, what position did you play in football? Football, I was uh, 
I, bo- I played both offensive end and defensive end. Today we would say tight end and, and a defensive end. Yeah. And in basketball, how tall are you? I'm six, four and a half. Um, played center. Uh, for our little school, Hempstead is where I ended up in high school, but uh, it was a B school in those days, very small. But um, I played center. There was another guy a year behind me that we switched off sometimes. He played forward. I would play center or vice versa. Nice. So I understand you're from a large family. Yeah. Um there were nine of us children all together, uh, seven boys and two girls, and I'm number six out of that group. So, Right there in the middle. Right in the middle. <laughs> Did any of them enter re- religious life? My younger brother, um, the, who would have been the eighth one in the family, James, he thought about it for a while, um, but he ended up going to Sam Houston State and, and got a degree in accounting, so... He didn't end up in the seminary, but he did consider it for a while. Okay. And so you're the only one. I'm the only one in my immediate family. I had a first cousin, uh, Veronica Borsky. She was a Dominican sister. And very interesting story. She worked in World War II in California. It was kind of like Rosie the Riveter. I mean, women worked. In factories preparing for the, you know, yes. supplies for the war. And that's what she was doing. And um, she met some of the Dominican sisters who worked in a parish and she got interested in religious life. And she joined the uh, Dominican sisters here in the Houston area. And she just died about four or five years ago. She, she lived to be 92. So she spent a long time in religious life. Okay, so did you two grow up together? She was a little older. I mm-hmm. knew her. I knew her more after she was a sister before, she, rather than before she entered. So, did you always know that you'd become a priest? Oh no, uh, I had some glimpses of that. Uh, of all things, when I was uh, making my first communion in Navasota, the parish was St. Patrick's in Navasota, and. We had a visiting priest. I don't remember the details, but our regular pastor was not doing, feeling well or he's sickly. And so they had to uh, have a bazillion priest uh, from Houston. Uh, they teach at University of uh, St. Thomas as well as St. Thomas High School. Uh-huh. One of the, the bazillion priests came to take his place, and he had the mass for the, our first communion. The night or the day before, uh, we had to practice, and he was speaking to each of us individually. And, and I kind of blurted out when he asked, what did I want to do or become when I was uh, older? And mm-hmm. I thought, of, I said, well, I may, might want to be a priest. But I didn't go back to that until later on in a middle school a little bit. In high school... I had other plans, uh, was interested in dating and going steady and all those kinds of things that high schoolers do and uh-huh. was considering, you know, where I would end up after high school. So it was uh, really a, a time kind of after I got out of high school that I stopped to, to consider that call again. It was there off and on, but not that serious at different times. So only after high school. Right. So you did have some 
you did date around a little bit, have some relationships, anything serious? Well, I mean, for, for a high school or a teenager, <laughs> it was serious. <laughs> uh, what's interesting is uh, one of the girls that I dated when I was a senior, mm-hmm. um, she ended up getting married the day I, I was ordained wow. to the deaconate. So, <laughs> but I was in Rome being ordained and really didn't know she was getting married at that time until much later. I, you know, that was kind of a coincidence, but uh, yeah, not anything serious in terms of thinking about marriage, but certainly mm-hmm. serious about you know, having a, a steady relationship. Yeah. Okay. So you said that you were in Rome. How did the, how did you, go from graduating high school to studying in Rome? What, what were the, the steps there? Okay. Part of it was, uh, a principal part was we had a new bishop come into Galveston, Houston. Okay. Uh, bishop Wendell Anold was our bishop at the time when I first entered St. Mary's Seminary. I entered in 1960, and so about six, 1963, uh, Bishop Nold was blind, and so Rome sent another bishop whose name was John Markowski to be what we call the coadjutor bishop. He he did all the the work in the diocese. Uh, he didn't have final say. Bishop Nold had that, but uh, he ran the Bishop Markowski ran the diocese, and Bishop Markowski had gone to Rome for his own um, seminary education. Okay. And he announced when he arrived that he wanted to send a student from our seminary to Rome. And that's kind of the, the practice of some, some bishops and some dioceses. So I happened to be the first one in the, that came up after Bishop Markowski arrived. And so I was sent to Rome uh, in 1964 to study. So it was um, the selection of the bishop. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Um, like I say, he sent me over to, to Rome. We, all of the ones that were going to study in Rome from the United States gathered in New York. It, it was the time of the World's Fair. So I got to see the World's Fair. Oh, that's Fair nice. In uh, New York. And then we, we got on, on the boat, the uh, USS Constitution, and we sailed over to, uh, to Italy. We landed in Naples. It was an 11-day trip. And we got to know each other, the, the seminarians going to study. And so um, we got to know each other on the trip over. And then when we arrived in Rome, we began our studies there uh, from, from 1964 until I was ordained later in the year. Ordained in December 67, but we have to finish up our, our, our graduate work, which ended up in the summer of 68. Okay. You took a boat. Why, why did you take a boat instead of fly? That was the practice in those days because they wanted us as seminarians to get to know each other. We oh. had to live in um, the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, we had cabins, four to a cabin. And so we were coming from all different seminaries, different se- uh, dioceses in Texas, and most of us did not know each other unless we went to the same seminary. I only okay. knew one one other student when I headed out, and I got to know most of the other guys. There were seventy two of us going over to study in Rome uh, in September of sixty four. Wow, seventy two on one boat. Mm-hmm. 
That's am- that's amazing. So they wanted you all to get to know each other. So for those 11 days, you were just mingling, getting to know each other and, and all of that while you were on your way to Italy. That's correct. And, uh, and the boat itself, there were probably 2,000 passengers on it. So we were down in the, the cabin class, not in the first class. <laughs> so uh, what was interesting going over, uh, that was the days of... Um, you know, what we call the hootenanny days. They would they would be sing-alongs. Okay. And so here we were, 72 men, young men going to study for the priesthood. And there were probably about 50 students going over to study um, either art or language in uh, Florence, Italy, or Perugia, Italy. And um, so the social director the, of the boat decided, well, we didn't, we need to put these young men and young women together type of thing. Uh-huh. Cause the social director had no idea what seminarians were about. So, <laughs> so none of us would mingle with the girls uh-huh. on the boat. We would say hello, but we were not dancing. And those are things that mm-hmm. the social director created for the, for the, um, entertainment on the, on the boat. So what we, we did, we had about three, four, guys that played the guitar, a couple of people played banjo. We had some excellent singers. So we started singing, you know, a uh, hundred miles, a hundred miles, those kinds of things, <laughs> of songs that were very popular in those days. Then we became, at least the groups that sang, became kind of the entertainment on the boat. The social director had to kind of wow. rearrange everything, but it was fun. <laughs> and we had fun going to different uh, you know, first class and cabin class and tourist class to to sing for others. And it, it was a fun time for everyone on the boat, but it was a fun time for us to, as seminarians, to kind of work together and get to know each other and get to know other people as well. That must have been very entertaining. Like you're, you're a first, let's say you're a first class passenger and Hey, we've got some seminarians here to sing us some songs. And okay, and then a whole bunch of seminarians come in and extremely talented and well, they seem to enjoy it. Now, whether what they said afterwards, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's backtrack a little bit. Okay. So what? Um, at what point did you decide that one hundred percent you're going into the seminary? Was there a was there a, a point in time where you realized that? I think so, but let let me back up kind of um, going into the seminary. So when I graduated from high school, there was the thought of seminary still there. And it was kind of encouraged by my pastor who had come to the parish in in, uh, Hempstead, St. Mary's in Hempstead. His name was uh, Al Ray. He was uh, 39 years old. And he was uh, very athletic, and we kids, teenagers, really warmed up to him. And he got us involved in, in those days where it would be youth ministry, which was called uh, CYO, Catholic Youth Organization. And so we would meet not just in our own parishes, but we would go and visit other parishes in the area. In fact, there was an organization in the whole diocese for youth groups. and so. I got involved with the youth uh, through uh, Father Al Ray and uh, 
in some of the trips that I made to, with him to different gatherings, uh, I started working with the um, diocesan level groups. I was elected the president of the diocesan CYO, and so we we kind of as as um, young people made uh, some programs for each other and um, you know for different parishes as as well as annually getting together as youth in that process uh father ray asked me one day as we were driving to houston from hempstead he says have you ever thought about being a priest mm. and i said no real quickly uh, <laughs> because i didn't want to talk about it actually i had as i mentioned to you mm-hmm. um but he never really pushed me anymore. Um, and then it kind of caught on a little bit. When I graduated from high school, I was preparing to accept a scholarship to Texas A&M. I was good in math, and I wanted to be an engineer. And um, so as I was thinking about that, um, probably early July, when I had to uh, say yes to to A&M that I was coming, something just came over me that said, you're not ready. You're not ready to choose engineering or, you know, go to study for engineering. And I really wasn't that sure about seminary. It wasn't that high on the list. And to this day, I can't explain to anyone other than to say, I decided not to go to, to, the, to college. I came to Houston to work. My brother worked at a at a company here in in Houston, so he got me on to work. I worked from uh, four in the afternoon to midnight. That was the shift. We worked Monday through Friday. If the work was heavy, then we worked on a Saturday. But um, when you work a, that kind of shift, there's not a whole lot of interaction with other mm-hmm. people. When you come home, it's like two in the morning and you sleep till 10 or 11. So. What were you doing? Well, it's an interesting thing. It's a company that made products for the oil industry, for pipelines and so forth. But they were getting into a new field. And that was the, um, they were building skyscrapers, but using glass all the way around. But to have a glass in, in a building in Houston, where hurricane or hurricane force winds came, uh-huh. you had to figure out how to keep that glass in without it popping out. And so our company created a a, um, a rubber kind of thing that would you fit the glass in and would be so tight that hurricane force winds would not um, break them out or blow them out. And so that's what I started working on. I was uh, in the very beginning. In fact, my brother helped design the, the the mold to produce this product. So I started working there, and and I think I made about seventy five percent of of all the, what they call gaskets that went into the old humble building, which still stands. Oh wow! And uh, but anyway, that was my job, and uh, I mean, it wasn't leading anywhere. To I mean, you were producing things, but. Uh-huh. Uh, in the process of doing that and staying busy, one of the things that came up was, um, what was I going to do kind of with the rest of my life? And um, 
I was aware that I had certain talents. Mm -hmm. uh, I was pretty good academically and had some interest, certainly, in helping in the church. I had done that through youth ministry. And so the question came up to me was, what will I do? And, and I stopped by the old um, Foley's department store in uh, downtown Houston, and they had a bookstore there. And I picked up the New Testament. And for the first time in my life, I read it from beginning to end. And the person of, of Jesus just struck me as someone that uh, spoke to me deeply and how I would uh, try to use my talents to help people. And so that's how it, my discernment started. And so I called, uh, a new pastor had arrived in, in Hempstead, and I told him kind of what I talked about with Father Ray. And, uh -huh. and so we started talking, and I ended up interviewing at the seminary and starting in September of 1960. And I went there just to check it out. Uh -huh. But every year seemed to be a, a confirmation as this is where I should be. So that's how I got the seminary, uh -huh. and you asked whether it was a moment that I really knew. I think it was a gradual thing, and I, I grew into it. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to Rome, the time it came where I was to be ordained a, a deacon and later a priest, it was pretty clear that's what I wanted to do, to do with my life. So. Okay, so it was, uh, how, uh, how many years was it here in Houston before you went to Rome? Four years. Four years. Mm -hmm. Four years, and that was here in the St. Mary's on Memorial Drive, St. Mary's Seminary. Yeah. Okay, so at that point, you were already detached from your private life. Yes. Mm -hmm. And how was your family with your decision to become a priest? Well, my mother was very excited about it. Uh, my one of my older brothers, Bernie, who's still alive, um, he was uh, encouraging. The others kind of said, well, okay, that's what you're thinking about. Fine. They were not against it. My dad had questions, and I really don't know to this day when he had questions. He, he just kind of frowned when I said that. Really? Yeah. And But afterwards, he, he, he felt good about it. And um, certainly when I was ordained, he was pleased that I was ordained a priest. But uh, no real objections from them. Uh, but certainly from my mother, it was a lot of support as well as my brother Bernie. They helped me a whole lot in terms of kind of feeling like this is where I need to, to give my life. So, What was life like in the seminary back in those days? Well. Here in Houston. Yeah. Um, it was fun in many ways. Uh, when I arrived, that was the first time I had ever been in a Catholic school. Uh, I had gone to public school all my life. Uh, I went to church, mm -hmm. but I had no experience of taking classes and, you know, religion or even theology or anything like that. When I arrived at St. Mary's Seminary, I think there were like 22 of us men in the first year. And I think all but two of us had already been in Catholic school and all of them knew Latin. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I felt like I was way, way behind. And they were very well acquainted with uh, church teachings and, 
and you know had classes in religion and we had just you know a kind of a basic understanding but we were not as fluent in talking about the church as they were but it took us a couple of years but i think most of us caught up pretty quickly after that uh, so we had like in latin we had uh, latin classes every year for 4 years and wow in uh, in those days and and then just dedicated myself to the studies but we lived there on campus in those days that we didn't go off campus for classes all the classes were there for college level students uh, at the seminary and so we had intramural sports and other things that we did together uh, so it was fun overall but it was created an atmosphere to study and uh-huh. um, and I did well in my studies and that's kind of what Bishop Markowski noticed and decided to send me to Rome to study uh, later on. So I can so relate to the story you're talking about with, with going to school with students who've had religion classes mm-hmm. in the past. Cause when my, when my dad retired and we, we moved to the Philippines, mm-hmm. I had to finish my high school out in the Philippines and we went to a private school and it was a Catholic school. And I was so far behind all of my classmates when it came to religion that I had almost, I think I'd almost flunked out of school because of my religion grade, (laughs) because I was so far behind. (laughs) And then you said that Latin, was that something that was normally taught in high school for, or just for private schools? Yeah. In Catholic high schools, yeah, Latin was taught. You know, I think it was a standard part of the curriculum back in those days. Wow. If you went to Catholic high school, you, you studied Latin. What was it like trying to catch up with those classmates that already knew Latin and you're already at a disadvantage? Well, initially it seemed, you know, like a hill too high to climb. Uh-huh. Um, they could converse and, you know, the declensions of in Latin and what the words meant and all that. Um, but, I, you know, we, we started out together. They had the same class as I did. Um, and I picked up enough to, to catch up a little bit in the beginning. And then I really dedicated myself to it. And mm-hmm. I think they were bored. Many of them were bored with Latin because they had that. And I wasn't. Once I got a got interested in Latin and I was really, you know, a student of it and, and worked hard to, to master Latin. And I did quite well the last two or three years in, in Latin. But I think that was kind of the motivating factor. Initially, I was way behind, but afterwards, I, I was determined to catch up. And I think I passed most of the people <laughs> by, the, by the third year in it. So it worked out fine. So we've had some deacons in here and we've had uh, father david michael who's, who's a priest of course mm-hmm. and they talk about what life was like in the seminary with pranks and hijinks and stuff like that was it the same back then as well probably so maybe worse worse because <laughs> i know some of their stories now because that's where i live but yes. uh, we couldn't leave the seminary other than to go see the doctor for you know major you know visit or whatever it was mm-hmm. or shot uh, and um we only went home at thanksgiving and christmas and just a brief uh break 
<coughs> excuse me, brief break at uh, Easter. And so that's where we were. And so we couldn't move out. And that's created opportunities to play, you know, play pranks on one another. <laughs> one of the favorite things that some of the guys would do, because we didn't have air conditioning in the dormitories, but we had uh, ceiling fans. And so if somebody was wanting to get back at you, if they could go in your room, because most of the time we didn't lock our rooms. Uh-huh. They would put talcum powder up on the blades of the uh, attic <laughs> fan. I mean, the ceiling <laughs> fan. And the first thing you did after supper when you came in, it was dark. You would flip on the the fan to get some air uh-huh. moving, and you would be covered with a cloud of talcum powder. The so, entire room. That's right. Be- <laughs> it wasn't a fun thing to clean up either. Did that happen to you? It never happened to me, but it happened to some of the guys on the on my hall. So. Did any pranks happen to you? I had a friend. We well, ended up be a friend. Uh, he's a classmate of mine. We had some disagreement. I forget what it was. So he decided to put uh, baseball bats in my pillowcase. And so I went to bed that night and plopped down. And as soon as my head hit oh, the pillow, it, it was, hit the uh, baseball bats. They were carefully disguised there. So. <laughs> But uh, I got back at him. What did you do to him? <laughs> well, I, I we had golf, had some golf balls there. People would hit the golf balls out on the on the field. Uh-huh. So I took golf balls and put it under the the post of his bed, the four post. And so this, I just jacked up the his bed on the <laughs> golf balls and leaned the bed against the wall, so uh-huh. you couldn't tell when he got in for a nap one day. Then he turned over, and then the the bed rolled off the golf ball. So he thought he was, you know, <laughs> an earthquake had hit or something. But he knew who did it. And so <laughs> we continued. I don't know all the other things we did to one another, uh-huh. but probably after a year or so, we decided we needed to become friends rather than oh wow <laughs> do these things to each other. And we're the best of friends today. He's still still living in poor health, but he's up in the diocese of austin he was ordained a priest so okay but we became the best of friends after that so. do you ever talk to each other about those pranks that you you we, did to each other we back do then? we do and uh we called each other probably about once a month now uh-huh he's been retired for a good while and i could say he's in poor health he doesn't uh mm-hmm. help out in any he used to help out in a nursing home but he can't do that anymore he just uh just has to be at home so but he's a he's he's done well. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. So any other any other pranks to was it was it off limits to prank the the priests now, back then? Yeah, we didn't we didn't have the courage to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we we might end up outside the seminary <laughs> like if we did something like that. Were they much stricter in those days? Pretty strict. Yes. Uh huh. Because. Um, First of all, you came in, and we knew that the the rector of the seminary and the faculty, their word, you know, was law, and mm-hmm. their recommendation to your bishop, you know, would determine whether you would go on towards uh, the priesthood or not. So we were careful about what we said <laughs> and didn't say to them. Yeah. So you spent four years, did you say, 
Four years at St. Mary's here in Houston. Yes. What was it like during those days? That was the, I would, that was like the mid early sixties, early sixties, early sixties at that time. That was like during this whole, that was right around the whole hippie era. Right. If I'm not mistaken. Yes. But you know, I think the biggest thing was the civil rights movement. Okay. That was the thing that captured our attention and, um, John Kennedy was was assassinated in '63, and so all of that happened while we were we were in a, you know college seminary. Uh, so it was a it was a difficult time um, trying to adjust to see where our country would be going. Yes, um, but I think it did shape us in many ways. Um, I can remember the when K- Kennedy was shot for sure uh-huh. because. Um, we we were preparing for a play uh, in early December at the seminary, and I was in a work crew up in our attic, and so we were working that afternoon, and I guess we were there about three hours. We came down from the attic, and normally you saw guys in the hall, and we looked, and nobody was in the, any of the halls. It was... Uh, uh, a time when people were, didn't have class. Uh-huh. So we looked all over the place. Uh, the I guess it was about four or five of us. And someone said, they're down in the TV room. And we went down there, and that's when we discovered what had happened. That wow. Kennedy was shot. And, you know, a few hours later, they were announced that he had, you know, had been killed. So that was quite a quite an experience. Because I can remember that day very vividly because of circumstances we were in and what the impact that had on on us as a whole nation, for sure. How did it affect you while you were in the seminary? Well, you know, what was happening both in our country and what was happening in the church was there was so much positive energy about, you know, JFK said, you know, what can you do for your country? Don't ask what you, Mm -hmm. you know, country can do for you. And so there was a sense of like Camelot, you know, this was the perfect time to, to live. And, and JFK was a Catholic and we just felt good Mm -hmm. about being Catholic, being in the church, studying to be priest, uh, our country seemed to be alive with new possibilities, going to the moon, all those kinds of things. And then the assassination of JFK. And then what followed was the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Robert Kennedy, yes, others. So it, it, it became a very traumatic kind of experience um, for us. Because that happened in 63 and 64, I ended up going to Rome to mm. study for the priesthood there in the seminary. Uh-huh. And the, the experience carried over, but in a different way. Uh, when I got to Rome, you know, you would meet people there in Rome. The Italians would say, where are you from? And you say, I'm from Texas. Well, you killed Kennedy. Ooh, <laughs> you yes. know, that was the kind of response you got. And, uh, but. Again, in in Rome, then we were uh, encountering the changes in the Church and the Second Vatican Council that was going on at that time. We in, we got there in '64. The Council had already started for a year or so, 
and it ended in in 65 but so changes um yeah we were excited about the changes but we realized the difficulty of beginning to implement those so that was kind of my experience both in college seminary and then later in graduate theology seminary so you talked about the whole mood of the country mm-hmm. you know with JFK and and all of that did that just embolden you and just make you stronger in in wanting to become a priest and wanting to serve others yeah that part yes uh, or to you know for me to kind of look at my life and what can i do you know it was a positive way of uh bringing change to people's lives and and kind of bringing about something new in our in our country, but certainly through the church, that was exciting. Uh, but at the same time, you were looking around and beginning to see the the riots in different parts, you know, different cities and people burning neighborhoods down, so to speak. So it, it was kind of the question was, where are we going? You know, where are we uh, going? So certain uncertainty, uncertainty, yes. But uh, go ahead. Where were you when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated? I was actually, I was on, on a trip to, to the Holy Land. And I was, I was in Istanbul, Turkey, uh-huh. taking a flight. We had left Rome and we're in Istanbul heading to, to the Holy Land. And we we saw something had happened, but we didn't know what. We didn't have any access to English newspapers at the time, and so we made our way to some place close to the embassy there in Istanbul and found out that he had been been killed. So, but yeah, I was on on a trip, and it was it was kind of a strange feeling, and 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 at the same time, kind of wondering where else you know is our country going, so yes. to speak. So. So you, during this the, the whole civil rights era, how, how did that um, how did that affect you in the seminary as well? Especially since you were you know you were here in Houston at one point, and then you were in Rome. Mm-hmm. What did that? What, how did that affect you and you know your your brother seminarians? I think it had a positive effect on seminarians at that time, at least for us both in Houston and in Rome. And I think it was a commitment to work for changes um, in terms of respect for people of different cultures, uh, certainly race relationships and so forth. Uh, there was a great emphasis of that in the seminary, and certainly shortly after that, um, when we got back, to, to work in the diocese, there was a great emphasis on, on working together with uh, different cultures, with blacks and whites, and in learning to to serve as a priest to bring about some kind of understanding and respect in in our parishes and mm-hmm. our neighborhoods. A lot of uh, issues that involve more than just Catholics. Uh, you know, we would work with with Protestant ministers as well. So. There was a great interest in that, and I think we felt that was our calling. Um, and certainly, we had the encouragement of our bishop to, to to be involved in social change. And but in in light of what the gospel tells us, so of course, um, of course. So, did you have uh, 
uh, brother seminarians who were black? One uh, uh, seminarian, actually, he took, uh, he was in my class, but he sh- he came in when I was going to Rome. So he had already finished college, and so he was in my class here in Houston uh-huh. when I went to Rome. His name was Cliff Ransom. He had come over, and, and I forget where he went to college seminary, but uh, uh, he was a uh, he wasn't the first black seminarian there, but uh, he, he certainly was in my class, and he was ordained a priest for this diocese. Yeah. What about when you were in Rome? What was the attitude of, of people outside of the United States when it came to what was going on in the United States? Well, um, certainly the thing that caught the attention of most people in Europe was the Vietnam War. Mm. And um, so you would, there would be protests in different cities, especially in the capital cities of those countries, uh, 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 you know, telling United States, get out of Vietnam type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm sure there was support for the, you know, the presence of our, arm, you know, our armed services there, but it certainly wasn't the ones that you saw marching in the streets. And so uh-huh. when you went visiting different places, if they saw that you were American, sometimes that you know they would confront you. Why are you, you know, in Vietnam? But not anything that was uh, you know made us feel, you know, insecure, not safe in that area. It was uh-huh. just a normal thing to to make you know have protests in those days. Yeah, you see an American, you want to ask them. Yeah, what is your reasoning behind your government and all right. of that? So that. I can't just, it just blows me away, everything that was going on in that decade. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And that you were able to experience it as a young man, living through all of that JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights, and then Vietnam. Um, Going back to the civil rights uh, movement, what was the attitude in, you know, outside of the country since you were in, in Rome? What was the attitude towards the civil rights movement in the U.S.? I think for most countries, they didn't understand why that was an issue in the United States. And they did not have the, the experience that our country had of having black slaves who were freed and now trying to struggle to be accepted as you know, equal citizens in, in the country and so forth. They have people that are come in from outside, but they didn't have the numbers of, uh, you know, people that came from other countries, different languages or different uh, cultures or different color of skin and so forth. Now, they, th- they have that now, but uh, uh-huh. not in those days. And so I don't think they fully understood what was happening in our country, but I think they had a great respect, certainly for John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. For what he stood for, they mm-hmm. had a great respect for Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, so it wasn't like that they condemned us for that. They were just kind of in awe that this country that they respected so much would kind of would be in this turmoil, if you would, and and certainly the the things that happen in neighborhoods and in protests and people being. Um, you know, arrested for protesting and all the things that went on. Yes. You kind of have to remind yourself that this, this, these were the days back before the internet, before 
cable television, before all of this mass media. So there was there wasn't a whole lot of information that you're bombarded with now. Back then, it was very limited what people knew about what was going on in other countries. So that's it's very interesting. Now, going back to that that whole decade of the sixties, mm-hmm. where when I think of the, uh, that decade, I also think about the music. Yeah, and the great musicians that came out of that era. What were your favorites? Oh, I'm sure, not even sure I can remember that far back with the music. <laughs> uh, I can just remember in general the rock and roll and uh-huh. you know Elvis Presley and people like that. Uh, and but that was kind of an uh, overflow from my high school days, and it continued. I think we certainly were caught up with the, like I told you before, going over on the on the boat, the hoot dannies and so forth. Uh-huh. That was kind of the spirit of the time, but it, all of that came to a halt, really, you know, because much of that music led to a protest about the war in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and and uh, we shouldn't be there, and and so, you know, times were changing for sure. Okay, and. Um, so you're correct. I mean, the living through the '60s was was really significant, and I and I noticed the difference, you know, of my generation, or especially of priests that have gone through that time. Mm-hmm. We experienced the, the changes in the church through Vatican II. We experienced the changes in our country because of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we also felt that we had a responsibility as leaders, not just in the church, but also in our community. So there was a lot more effort on our part to get involved with other, with ministers of other uh, denominations and, and, you know, invest ourselves and try to make a change in our neighborhoods as well and bring about some kind of understanding. But uh, certainly the, the shift of our perception of ourselves as Americans was was significant there, and I think it it marked us. Is and I think it still does mark us. When I talk to young people now, you know that uh, civil rights is just something they read about in the hi- history book, huh? uh-huh. and um, or the changes of Vatican II. That's also old history. That's last century type of thing. You know, <laughs> we don't have to deal with that. There. But uh, it it shaped us considerably and still does shape my own vision of who I am as a priest, but who I am as a, an American citizen. So let's talk about Vatican II. So you grew up before that, and this was all happening while you were in the seminary. Could you tell us about the changes and how, how different things were back then, before, and how things after? Well, yeah, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly what it, what those were but it, you know I can remember going to mass even before I went to the seminary so everything was in latin mm-hmm. I served mass um so I knew some of the latin responses to the priest but I can tell you that when people went to mass uh they didn't pay t- attention to what the priest was saying cuz they didn't know what he was saying they had little missiles with English translation on, uh-huh. one, on one side and the Latin on the other. But most of the people that were really pious probably prayed their rosary when they went to Mass while the priest, you know, said the Mass in Latin. Okay. And um, 
So what began to change was the participation of the people in the mass before they just went to mass for, to fulfill an obligation. Mm-hmm. And they were very faithful to that, but uh, their part in participating in the whole mass was very limited. And gradually it began to change. First, they had responses that they would give in Latin, uh-huh. uh, not just the altar server, but uh, people. And then it began to be in the language of the people, uh, English for us, uh-huh. and but not completely. They did still a lot of it in Latin, some of it in English. But the involvement of the people in the Sunday Mass is just, there's no comparison. Because the priest would show up, he knew everything that had to be done. He didn't really need anybody else. If he had to, he would read the, the scriptures himself. And, uh-huh. and so he, he celebrated the Mass, and the people attended, and very few, very few received communion. Oh, really? Yeah. You only receive communion at Christmas and Easter type of thing. Wow. Um, of course, most people felt that uh, they were not worthy. Um, that was just kind of the atmosphere in the church at that time, uh-huh. kind of the, the piety of the time. So all of that began to change where not only did they respond, but most people heard the invitation to you know, this is my body, then you come and eat and come and receive. And so the, the, that kind of participation just grew and grew. Um, so, and I was a young priest at the time, a student and then a priest, and, and that was really exciting to see the church come alive. And uh, wow, and not just the priest doing their thing, but the people participating. Because back in those days, the priest had their... Back, Back to, to the, the people, yeah. Yes. So yeah. it really wasn't an engagement with the, the priest and the congregation. That's correct. And um, you would never know what he was saying anyway. Uh, <laughs> Unless he studied Latin. And studied Latin, right. And even if you studied Latin, he celebrated Mass so quickly, he probably <laughs> couldn't keep up with him. But uh, no, people love their priest. That, that wasn't the point. It's mm-hmm. just the involvement that the, the, the people who were baptized has a, had a part to play and an indispensable part, really, because now, you know, we have people read the, the readings, the scripture readings or responsorial psalms. There's a lot more singing now uh-huh. of people gathering. Certainly here at St. Faustina, you know, when people come to Mass, everybody is invited to participate, singing, responding. You know, people reading, and then even the prayers of the faithful, that's all new. You know, at, at oh, each yes. Mass, you, you have uh, general prayers, intercessions for the needs of the, of the people. So just a real change in the way that we celebrate Mass. And, and as you say, you know, we, the priest now uh, faces the people, engages them, leads them in prayer. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I grew up with that, so that's something that I'm really excited about still to this day. Um, and, uh, but uh, it, it wasn't easy to bring about that change because people, first of all, heard about the council, uh-huh. and then the decisions were made every year. Some other document was, was, was uh, approved. 
and so those how that was implemented uh, came as new things for the people. And most of the older priests, uh, they were so used to celebrating Mass in a certain way. So I think for us as younger priests, one of our roles in the, in the parishes was to help the older pastors understand the changes. And, mm. and that's what happened to me. In my, I was at Blessed Sacrament Parish at the time. And was there a lot of resistance, not just from the priests, but from anyone in the congregation to the there changes? Was, there was some resistance. I won't say a lot. Part of it was people just didn't understand. Why did we have to do this? It's the same thing with, you know, now if someone says, now you have to do such and such and filing your income tax, that's totally different than the way you did before. Why do you need to change after all these years? (laughs) And that's kind of how it was there. Or just like how the responses kind of changed a little several years ago Mm -hmm. in the mass. So do you, your attitude towards the changes you think they were mainly f- for the better, the way you're talking about it, I can tell. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because if there was anything that was obvious before, uh-huh. it was the priest mass, so to speak. I mean, he can, he was responsible for the whole thing, and you just attended. You could just show up in the back of the church and go to mass and leave when it was over type of thing. So you're just an observer. Observer, right. And now you go and you're in, engaged or should be engaged. And most people in, in, enjoy being engaged. But yeah, um, I, I don't see uh, any, it's not, no comparison between what we had and what we had before. Because I have seen some, I would say, so, uh, some things online where there are some people who want to go back to the way things were done before. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, it, I know about that. Some want, some want the, the traditional Latin mass mm-hmm. returned. What, there are some things I would say there are implications of that because you go back and you don't have the full readings that you have today. Uh-huh. Uh, I understand the, the what, they say, you know, they lack maybe a sense of sacredness, a sense of mystery that they felt was in the old mass in Latin, and you had the incense and so forth and so on. Yeah, but when you compare the difference, I mean, what we gained from the new mass uh-huh. is it's not, it, it, you know, it's, it's doesn't even, you know, compute for me. Uh, <laughs> but I understand. Some feel that they're, you know, that they're much more comfortable with the Latin. But again, it's a more of observing and not participating. Um, certainly, the 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 you know the Gregorian chant that we have in Latin that's beautiful. Uh-huh. Uh, you can still have that in the with the new mass. You just you don't have it, you know, complete in Latin. You can uh-huh. have some of the traditional Latin music there, but uh, yeah. I understand that, and but uh, I, I don't see the need for having that many places where you have it. In our diocese, there's a you know a couple of parishes that are designated just for for people who feel that's where they need to go. And I would hope that that would remain the same rather than every parish trying to create a you know a Latin mass in the old style just uh-huh. to you know appease a few people. So coming out of the 
seminary in Rome, you said you were kind of on fire because of all these changes that were happening. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a young priest at that time in 67, you said? 68. 68. Oh, that's right. You were ordained Mm -hmm. in 67, but you didn't graduate until uh, 68. Right. Again, it was exciting. Um, When I arrived back in Houston from Rome, I was assigned to St. Christopher's Parish in in Houston for a few months. That was just a temporary assignment. Then I went to Holy Name Parish, which is a north side, near north side, uh, what they call close to downtown Houston. And what happened, or what was happening at that time, there were certain people that kind of gathered us, a group of priests after Masses on when you finished on Sunday. We used to gather at St. Joseph's uh, Parish. Um, The pastor was uh, Father Pat Flores, who became Archbishop Flores. Um, He was Archbishop of San Antonio, but as a pastor, he was very friendly and gathered us. It is. It was exciting that we were kind of gathering to to talk about the changes because that's what we were doing. We were implementing changes in those days Mm -hmm. in the parishes, and we kind of traded stories of how they went and how we could help one another. At the same time, it was struggling, you know, with you know. some young guys felt, well, this is not not enough change. We need to change even more. <laughs> so those were the things that we had to deal with too. So you, and then, you know, Rome says, let's hold on. You can't go any further than this type uh-huh. of thing. So must have been a very exciting time because you you were in the seminary for those years while all of this was happening, and now you're out in the world. And you're like, this is my chance to start making my mark, to start doing the changes that I've been wanting mm-hmm. to do and to, to serve the people that I've been wanting to for so many years. I understand, and now I read somewhere, that one of the priests, when you, when you showed up, said, I didn't ask for you. Oh, <laughs> nobody <laughs> told you that. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is that all about? Well, that was my second, really, really second assignment. My first real assignment of any length was Holy Name, and I was happy there. I worked with the youth. And uh, in 73, I was changed. Usually in those days and still today, you know, a young priest is assigned to a parish for about three years. And then after three years, he's assigned to another parish. And the reason for that is to get experiences and under different pastors and different parishes. So I was uh, changed from Holy Name Parish and was sent to Blessed Sacrament. Blessed Sacrament had an older priest there as the pastor. His name was Jack Davis. Okay. And so I thought out of courtesy, I would call him when I got my letter from the bishop saying I was going to Blessed Sacrament. So Mm -hmm. I called him and I said, uh, Monsignor Davis, I'm your new pastor. we didn't call them parochial vicars in those days. I, I'm your your new uh, assistant pastor coming, and I'll be arriving such and such day. And there was a little silence on the other end, and he says, uh, "I didn't ask for you." And I said, "Wow!" And I'm in kind of shock, and I didn't know what else to say other than, "I've got this letter. I'm coming anyway." But um, so. Um, I went to visit him and 
We were kind of cordial, but uh, somewhat distant and what I was supposed to do and when I was supposed to arrive, what my room would be. And and so that's how that began. But the reason he said that, he had a young priest there who actually was a year ahead of me in seminary. Okay. And he was really outgoing and he used to wear um, like a gold sport coat over his uh, black clerical shirt. I mean, he's just, he was very modern and that, and that was too much for Monsignor Davis. Okay. He tolerated him uh-huh. and, and the young priest did a lot of good work and organized a lot of things in the neighborhoods and so forth. Uh, but he, he just kind of really tested his patience in <laughs> many areas. And so that kind of what he meant, um, he would have preferred an older priest, but much more experienced than myself coming because he had a difficult time with this young priest, who who was a good priest, by the uh-huh. way. And so that's how I arrived. Uh, I mean, that's what happened as I was arriving. But what happened was, you know, he he really was a saintly man. Uh-huh. I grew to appreciate him. He really became my mentor to be a pastor, what it meant to serve people. Uh, He loved his people. He was there for them. Um, And then that's where where it came time to implementing some of the changes in Vatican II. One time he came to me and he said, um, you know, I don't know the first thing about how to explain this to people. Um, It had to do with some changes in the in the mass uh-huh. in the liturgies, and I I said, Monsignor, if you want, I can do the research, and if you want, I can give the homilies. And he said that would be fine. And I said I'll share what with you what I'm going to do. So okay. that's that's how it began, and it was like about probably a five or six occasions, not every weekend, but five or six occasions where I. I took all the homilies for the Sunday masses, weekend masses. But he had a copy of everything I was going to share, and he approved everything. But the thing that happened at the end, he was there at each mass. Uh-huh. And when I finished preaching, if he he was uh, the presider at the mass, he would get up and tell the people, this is what we're going to do from now on, as uh, as Father Borsky has explained to you. Uh-huh. Or if I was the presider, he would come out at the end of my homily, and he says to the people, this is what we're going to do. Now, what happened, I realized immediately when he did those things, I did not have the confidence of the people. Mm. If I would have said that as a young priest, they would have questioned me. Yeah, that's just another young priest trying to change things yes. in the church. But he had been there for years, and they loved him. But he came out and said, this is what we're going to do. His stamp of approval. Absolutely. And that began to change our relationship. And um, so, like I said, he became my mentor. I preached at his funeral mass. Uh, we became real good friends. So, um so the way things begin sometimes are not the way <laughs> they go to end. Yeah, even if you don't get off on a, a great right. foot. Right, right. That's correct. Yeah. So, 
talking about those days, it must have been very difficult for a lot of the priests, especially the older ones, with all the changes that were happening. And was there some resistance within the church? There was some resistance from some of the older priests, for sure. Um, you know, I had that experience a few years ago when we changed the translation. Yes. And I understood it then, going back and reflecting on what happened to the older priest. This is how they had celebrated Mass for 30, 40, 50 years. Uh-huh. And then to come in and say, now this is the way you're going to do it. From Latin to English, or the language and the familiarity with the words and how you do that. Um, and it wasn't just the Latin to English, it was just uh, the changes. We had a three year cycle of uh, scripture readings. Uh -huh. Before, we just had one year cycle. And now, you know, you went through three different cycles, three different years. And so, while it was important for the life of the church and the people, the priest had to bone up on that, if you will. Uh -huh. And uh, so it was not easy. And recently, when we changed the translation, I, to this day, there are some prayers that I had memorized before, and they have only changed a few words. I, I still <laughs> use the old way because that's, in my old age, that's how you remember things. And it's difficult when you get older to kind of re reconstruct that in your your memory so i understand what they went through so it's um it's very interesting because it would have been it's just a lot easier for you since you were a young priest at the time just getting started right. to, to start doing those things so you had moved throughout your your career as a priest to different um parishes so your first parish like you said um and then you moved to joined Father Jack Davis, and then after that, what happened? Well, yeah, my first parish was really St. Christopher's, mm -hmm. but like I say, that's what's temporary. Yes. They, they told me that uh, I wouldn't stay there very long. I just took, took a priest uh, place until the new arrival would be there. And so I went to Holy Name, and that's uh -huh. where I worked for three years before I went to uh, oh, okay. Father Davis. Okay. Uh, at uh, Holy Name, I was with um, uh, Father Dave Kennedy. Who was he was only like forty two when he became pastor, so he was closer to my age. Uh -huh. uh, Jack Davis was already in his sixties when I arrived, so um, that was kind of the difference. But from Blessed Sacrament uh, with Monsignor Davis, um, then I went to grad school in Washington D.C. because the bishop asked me now to work at the chantry at the bishop's office in uh, first in religious education. And then later on, I became what is called the vicar of education, kind of overseeing Catholic schools, religious education, okay. adult education for the archdiocese. So I went to grad school at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. to get a, a, a master's degree to help me, you know, do that work. Um, but that was uh, 73 when I left uh, Blessed Sacrament. Um, did a year of grad school and then went back a couple of summers to to finish off my master's degree. And so I switched from um, parish ministry to to ministry at the at the diocese at the chantry. Okay, and how how different was that? Different, like day and night, huh? <laughs> yes. Uh, 
work at central offices where you're dealing just with office staff. Uh-huh. Your work, my work was working with a team or staff, but going out to different parishes to visit. You didn't have the interaction with parishioners day in and day out, daily mass. You had daily mass, but there was just with a small chapel mm-hmm. at the chantry. So it was a different way of uh, using your gifts. Um, we were certainly aware of the need to train people um, in terms of religious education, the changes in textbooks and things like that. So uh, it was it was more of a kind of a being a professor, if you will, or uh-huh. uh, someone who learned different techniques and you were offered workshops and and it was a good experience because I got to understand and experience the diocese and the many different parishes that we had. But it's not as fulfilling as working in a parish where you're in contact with the, the people, you know, every day of your, of your life, every day of your ministry. Was it difficult letting go of that? L- letting go of the parish was yeah. difficult, you know, that work because you, you, you know, I'd done that for about seven years already. Felt very good about what I could do, uh-huh. and now you're, you're you're meeting different demands. Different parishes require different kind of workshops and things to to bring uh, ongoing training to the to the people there. So that part was, uh, I, I guess, let me put it this way: the most difficult thing is that. You were not getting all, you know, a lot of affirmation from people. You were getting, oh. why do we have to make these challenges? <laughs> I mean, changes, excuse me. So it was a challenge to kind of keep presenting what the church was asking us to do. And so it, it was a different mindset for sure. So after being the vicar of religious education, I understand you became the spiritual director after that? I ended up going to the seminary. And so part of my, uh, my time still working at the chantry as vicar of education, uh, the bishop asked me to go and live at the seminary, uh, St. Mary's Seminary, and continue my work at the chantry office, but live at the seminary and be a spiritual director for a few of the, the men. And the reason he asked me to do that is that we had uh, priests that were training our seminarians, but they were religious order priests. They were Vincentians. They were not diocesan uh, priests like myself. Okay. And our seminarians were being trained to be diocesan priests. And so they wanted someone like myself or whoever they would choose mm-hmm. to be kind of a role model, if you will, or someone that these students could relate to because this is what kind of ministry they would be doing, working in parishes. So that's how I went. Well, the reason I went um, in 1977, so I had two jobs at the time. The main job was vicar of education. Okay. The kind of the part-time job was to live at the seminary and, and relate to the students and be available to them for spiritual counseling or spiritual direction. That lasted about a year. And the, the rector of the seminary came to me and said, um, um, would you be interested or w- we would like for you to work full time here rather than at the chantry and 
if you're open to that, I'll go talk to the bishop about it. And I didn't know how to respond to him. I said, well, I'm, I can do the work here. He said, well, you are already acquainted with it uh, rather than train someone else, and we do need an extra person to work, and and we think we we would like for you to work here. So that's how mm-hmm. it started. Uh, it wasn't the intent of me going there to live to end up working there full time, but uh, <laughs> within a year, that's how it that's how the transition took place. So, so who makes these decisions as to where you go to to pluck you out of parish life and to put you in the office? It's always the bishop. The bishop. Somebody else can make the recommendation, but it's uh-huh. it's the bishop that signs off on the assignment. So, and then after your time as a spiritual director, what what happened next? Well. Uh, that one year as a spiritual director, then I moved into what we call being a formator uh, in external form. A spiritual director is like a confessor. Okay. What the students tell you is confidential. You can't share it with anyone else. Mm-hmm. You're kind of uh, giving them advice and praying with them and guiding them. So I moved out of that into being a formate, formator. Okay. In other words, I'm working with the students that are there preparing for the priesthood. I watch and observe their behavior, review with them what their goals for growth are, how they're meeting those, whether they are doing what needs to be doing. Are they making the grades necessary Mm -hmm. to to be a future priest? All those kinds of things. So I moved in what is called external forum. Whatever happens with the student's life, I'm free to share with the this faculty and eventually with the bishop and whatever recommendations I make as a faculty member is is you know concerning the future of that student. So what year was this? 1978 I began. Okay. And um so I worked as a formator for the theology students. Okay. Or you know it's like formation advisor. There're different names for that. Um, and then, so I worked from 78 to 1982 in that capacity. And, um, then in 1982, I became the rector of the seminary. I be, the, the, the religious priest made a decision. They didn't have enough personnel to staff the seminary because uh-huh. they had several other seminaries in the United States to staff. Okay. So in May of 82, I became the rector, which meant I had to find a staff <laughs> for the fall, fall of 1982. So, How old were you at this point? Gee, 82, I would have been 40, um, 41. And you were the rector of the seminary. That's correct. What, what does the rector of the seminary do? He's in charge of... Hiring and firing staff, uh, uh-huh. hiring uh, and firing professors. He uh, he's in responsible for uh, admissions of all the students who come to study for the priesthood, and he's in charge of making a final decision whether they can be ordained or not. So there's a lot of things in between, but he's the he's the pastor of that that community, but it's an important role because he's making decisions about the future of the church. 
Yes. And the, and the students that are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, where we were talking about how, you know, you had to let go of being a, a, a pastor and then you became more of an administrator. Mm-hmm. And so now you're, you're fully into being an administrator. Do, do you wish, or did you miss rather being a pastor and being at the ground roots level at I that point? Didn't realize that I missed it that much until, you know, after 19 years <laughs> being, a, being the rector, I went back and, and became a pastor. Um, no, initially when I became the rector, I'd already been there at the seminary for four years, actually uh-huh. five, but four years working. And I saw the need. Um, and again, it's a question of your gifts. Um, I had enough gifts to, to, you know, certainly in terms of what is required of someone preparing for the priesthood, uh-huh. in terms of the curriculum and the at that level, both for the undergraduate and the graduate uh, programs, uh, the kind of uh, experiences they need in parish assignments as seminarians to to prepare for the priesthood, and then just the normal growth patterns of, of people, you know, some understanding of psychological development. Mm-hmm. So that I had already studied a number of those areas and had some experience and the fact that you know i had experience already at the seminary there was no one else in the diocese that had (laughs) any experience at all so that's how i started but at the same time my personality is more of a introvert even though i'm in work that requires me to be (laughs) with the public all the time yes but a lot of my strengths are being able to reflect uh, look at things, size them up, make decisions about that. So it was a way of using gifts that I had for the good of the church. And so that part ended up being very uh, fulfilling for me. Um, but it's just uh, 19 years to be in charge of a seminary is, is, is fairly long. I think at the time I was the third longest uh, ruling, <laughs> if you want to call it that, uh, seminary rector in the United States. So. I was happy to leave from it and go to a parish. So what was, what was it like being the rector and comparing that to your time in the seminary? It made you feel very humble. Really? Oh yeah. Because, um, I was making decisions about people's lives and, uh, some who really desired to be a priest, um, you might have to say, no, you don't have the gifts necessary. And they wow. just don't, they can't comprehend why you came to that conclusion. Not that you would get to that decision, you know, you know quickly. Uh-huh. You would certainly give every, them every opportunity to demonstrate what gifts they had. But yes. you have to make that decision that some guys simply don't have the gifts for for parish ministry as a priest. So that's a difficult thing. But I tell you what I did do. I was a rector then after for about a year and a half or two years. And I called my old rector up in Rome. He had <laughs> retired and he was a bishop, retired bishop now living uh-huh. in, in uh, Florida. So I called him 
one day and I said, uh, I said, guess what? I said, now I am a rector. <laughs> and he had been my rector in Rome and he started chuckling. But we ex exchanged some letters and it was really a, a good process to, for me to kind of reflect on what I what my role was in the church now as a rector, because it's, it's a very important role. Mm -hmm. And in his sharing with me of his experiences was, was very helpful. So it's very humbling. Uh -huh. uh, and yet you have to, you know, accept the responsibility of doing that. And, and you're the one, I mean, you might have a faculty that makes recommendations, but in the end, you make the final decision. What type of thing would disqualify somebody from being a priest? I mean, what is like the most common thing that you run into well, or ran into that is? Well, one thing would be whether they had the ability to comprehend the teachings of the church. In other words, academically, could they, you know, you're responsible as a priest for handing on the teaching of the church or the the tradition of the church. And some guys simply don't have that ability. I mean, they may know uh, something about the, the faith, uh, but kind of the theological foundations of that, they have difficulty of, of uh, sharing that with people or, or making that known to people. So one area would be certainly intellectual ability. Okay. Another area would be whether they have self-control in, in, in the sense, if somebody has an addiction, if they drink too much or something like that, and that happens with people. And then if they can't demonstrate they have self-control, um, then you don't, you can't put them in the position of guiding the lives of people as a priest. Uh -huh. Um, and then sometimes it's just, uh, decisions that the, the individual makes that he wants to, you two kind of excuse him from something he's done. Uh -huh. It may not be a, a thing of a, an addiction that happens all the time, but uh -huh. just a serious um, decision he's made, something he said, or, or get in a, you know, almost a physical, sometimes a physical fight with someone, those kinds of things. Okay. And you just have to say, uh, we can't tolerate this. And so those are some of the areas. Um, and then certainly the ability to live a celibate life, you know, that comes underneath the idea if they have self-control, can they live a life uh, of celibacy? And if they can't, then you have to advise them, you know, you, you're probably better off leaving the seminary now, uh -huh. you know, reflecting on that. And if you want to come back later, let us know. But you need to seriously spend a few years just discerning that. Is that common? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What's the most common among all of the things that would disqualify someone? I think the most common thing would be a young man deciding, hey, this looked like a good idea for me to be a priest. Uh -huh. Now it doesn't seem so, so <laughs> fulfilling. They and, realize uh, it themselves. They realize it themselves. Yeah. That happens the most often. Yeah. Okay. How, how is it different now, the, the seminary and forming priests? as compared to back in your day? Internet has had a tremendous uh, impact on young people. Um, just the issue of pornography, for one. Okay. 
that is very common for our young people beginning at a very young age, even before the age of 10. Because it's so easily accessible now. Right. They can get it on their cell phone, computer. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what I tell some of the guys, you know, they're struggling with that, you know. In my day, that was not something we, I mean, certainly we all had tendencies, you know, to, to look at some, you know, pictures or whatever mm-hmm. that were, you know, we would describe as somewhat pornographic today, but this is something that they have available to them from a very young age and some yeah. already seeing. So that's an issue that's, that's big. I think the other thing is, and besides the internet, is that uh, in terms of pornography, it's just the fact that people don't relate in the way that we did 60, 70 years ago in terms of interacting uh, you know, person to person, a lot of people just text each other. I uh-huh. mean, they, they communicate, but you know, through the internet or cell phone, uh, they don't spend the time in, you know, interacting as human beings. And so in my day going into the seminary, I would say a good per- percentage of us came from rural areas. Okay. And so that we had a sense of being close to the priest, being close to the people, small parishes. We enjoyed what we were doing. Uh, nowadays, uh, small parishes are disappearing. You know, we have huge, huge uh, uh, parishes like St. Faustina. And so you have some interaction with the priest, but not to the extent we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, Looking back at my own life, that you know, trips from Hempstead to Houston, which is about sixty miles or less than sixty miles, and talking to the priest as we we're driving, you know, that's not something that a lot of people, a young people, would experience today. Uh, and then I just think uh, we don't have as many families, <clears throat> excuse me, encouraging vocations as much as in my day. Um, I come from uh, like St. Stanislaus is a is a parish of you know people there of Polish heritage. Uh, uh, Poles have a very strong Catholic faith. When they came from Poland, they brought that Catholic faith with them, and they would have encouraged uh, young men and young women to consider priesthood or uh-huh. religious life. Uh, that is not encouraged as as much these days, and. You don't have the the uh, the heritage of different ethnic parishes as we did back then. Um, the other thing was you had a lot of people, you know, that were their their parents or their families lived in like Beaumont, Port Arthur area, outskirts of Houston that they worked in refineries and so forth. So your blue collar workers tended to kind of encourage uh, their some of their children to go on to to Catholic, I mean, to seminary. And then I think the biggest thing really for, for high schoolers now is, is the lack of uh, experiencing priests and religious women teaching them in the high school. For example, in, in Beaumont area, there's St. Anthony's high school. And usually the Dominican sisters would say to certain students, usually the best students in the class, you ought to be a priest type uh-huh. of thing. And so, <laughs> you know, like Bishop Fiorenza would have been one of those guys that uh, 
the sisters would have said, you ought to think about that. And so that kind of encouragement at a high school level, uh, I don't think is as strong today as it was back in my day. What, why do you think so? Why do you think that's the case? Many things, I think, kind of a secular mindset that besets all of us, whether we like it or not, even mm-hmm. those of us who are working in the church. Uh, um, you're kind of working just to make a living or dealing with what's there in the world. And uh, how do you integrate your faith into this kind of modern world? Again, technology, I think, has a lot to do with it. How do you create a sense of experiencing God? You can, for sure, using technology, but you'd almost have to find a group that's doing that rather than it being as pervasive as we would have had it before. And family life. I mean, um, you know, families gathering to pray before the meal or family prayer, going to mass together, all those kinds of things have changed in recent years. So after being the rector of St. Mary's Seminary, you said that you went back into parish life. Right. How did that happen? Well, as I said, I was rector for 19 years, which is a long time. I was named rector by Bishop Markovsky, who's the same one that uh, sent me to Rome as a student. Um, Then after he retired, um, Bishop Fiorenza came in uh, as our, our bishop here in Galveston, Houston. So when he arrived, um, which was somewhere late 80s, um, I meant, went to him, and I'd been rector since, you know, 82. I said, normally a rector is a rector about seven to 10 years. So I said, I'm not saying we need to change. I said, but you're the new bishop, and it's your prerogative to name whomever you want whatever priest you want to be the rector. I said, so I'm telling you, I'm ready to move on whenever you have someone. And Bishop Fiorenza says, um, well, I've got too many other things I have to consider right now, Just, but I appreciate you telling me that. So I waited about five years and not hearing from him, I <laughs> met with him and I said, remember what I said. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, could you stay on? Uh, a little bit longer, and so that was the mid-90s, and uh, finally at the end of the 90s, I went back to him and I said, Bishop, uh, I've spent, you know, I'm almost 20 years here. Um, I've done, I think, as much as I can with my talents. I think we need new new blood, new direction, uh, and just a new kind of new spirit uh, and a fresh start. and. He said, okay. And so it, about a year and a half later, he, <laughs> he named a new rector. So, <laughs> But I um, left seminary work, and I went to St. Martha's in Kingwood as the pastor. So that was the transition, and that happened in 2001. How different was it going back after so many years into parish life? Well, to some degree, I experienced parish life. Um, Weekends, because I would help out at masses as I do here at St. Faustina now. But so I knew that, but I didn't have the experience of being there, you know, every day of the week. Um, initially, didn't it didn't uh, 
wasn't that difficult. Um, but I had to wake up, you know, knowing that each day, you know, I had masses in the parish, I had meetings. Mm-hmm. It was different than the seminary. Seminary scheduling is you, you live according to an academic schedule. You get ready for the students and mm-hmm. in the fall and you have Christmas break and you have summer break, which is busy at a seminary, but it's you're working kind of behind the scenes. You're not meeting people and you, know, you don't have kind of business meetings or staff meetings and all that. So that, that was the big change. In other words, the, your Monday through Friday, you had uh, work with your staff and weekends were getting ready for the parish masses and confessions and weddings and all those things that happened. So, but it didn't take me long to get back into that kind of uh, life. And it's, it's really fulfilling. And I think the main thing is getting relationship with, with the people. You get to know them. Um, St. Martha's was about 3,500 families. I uh, grew, when I left, it was almost 7,000 families. So it's a huge parish. But along the way, you get to know and work with people. And that's very, very fulfilling. And you, you baptize their children, and later on, you're going to have confirmation. And I'm, today, I'm still going back to witness weddings of someone that I even baptized, wow. so those kinds of things. So, so it's, a, it's a great experience. What was, what's the biggest difference with the way parish life is back before, you know, before you were, the, you were in with the, the seminary? And this compared to afterwards, because it's we're talking what a couple of decades and plus. Sure. Well, the biggest difference we have had a tremendous number of Catholics move down to the Houston area. My first assignment in 1968, a temporary assignment, was to St. Christopher's for three months. Okay, there was a pastor. There were two other pastoral uh, past, uh, priest associates there, plus myself. Okay, there were four of us priests. I think we had five masses, so that meant we had only one mass on the weekend uh, most of the time. One of us would have had two. So uh, just that alone, um, sometimes at St. Martha's I would have three and sometimes even four masses on the weekend, okay? So just the number of masses that you have, the number of people, the number of funerals and weddings in large parishes, that's, uh, it just it grows. So, the, so that's one of the things, fewer priests, but you, it's not just the fewer priests. We probably have close to the same amount of priests in this archdiocese mm. as we have had 40, 50 years ago. But the ratio. The ratio is so different. And then the other thing is now you might have one, um, one pastor and a parochial vicar. That's probably as much as you can hope for, uh-huh. even in a large parish. Yes. So the, the staff of a parish, the parish staff is, is much larger now. And so one of the changes is as pastor, you're, you're dealing with the professional staff someone to run liturgy, someone to, mm-hmm. to run the, uh, the, you know, is the plant manager, the business, the, is a business uh, manager of the parish. And 
and someone is in charge of religious education, maybe at three different levels, high school, middle school, elementary school, somebody in charge of uh, preparing young people for first communion, first confession, and those are huge numbers. So all of those things we didn't have before. Uh, you know, that was the responsibility of the pastor. Usually you would have, the parish would have been smaller. Uh-huh. You probably would have had more religious women working in the school, mm-hmm. and they also worked in in preparing the kids for first for first communion, first confession. So those those would be big changes as well. Did it feel like back then you were sort of a small business, and now you're more of like a corporation? Is that what it feels like? Sometimes like that, because you have to have, uh, you know, at, at St. Martha's, I had a staff meeting once a week, okay? We, I had a team, about eight people, that we met once a week. The full staff, we made one, you know, we would meet either once a month or every two weeks. Yeah, a lot of times your work as a pastor, especially in large parishes, is dealing with your staff rather than dealing with the people in ministry because you've got a lot of other people dealing with people in ministry. You're trying to make sure all those bases are covered. So please tell us about Martha's Kitchen. Okay. Well, the that has been in existence probably for about 30 years. And so it was before my time Okay, as pastor. I became pastor in 2001. And it was already there for about 10 years. And the founding pastor was uh, Father or Monsignor Bill Tinney. So the the parish was Kingwood. It's an upper middle class. There was no need for social outreach to the poor in Kingwood at that time. And so uh, Monsignor Tinney says, we need to, as a parish, reach out to those in need. And so he decided, along with some of the parishioners, to purchase a little piece of property close to Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish. And there he, he farmed or built a, uh, a building um, called Martha's Kitchen. And it's basically a large kitchen with a uh, commercial kitchen and, and dining room and walk-in freezer, walk-in cooler. And there are volunteers. Um, so the, they serve a warm meal every day, Monday through Friday, um, from about 11.30 to about 1.30. And there are two uh, sittings. Uh, first sitting, the people come in, and then they leave, and another group comes in. But the idea was to provide um uh, uh food for the hungry and so it's a wonderful concept it's a soup kitchen um there are no questions asked mm-hmm. you could walk in there yourself you could be in a uh, suit and tie and coat coat and tie type of thing walk in nobody would ask you whether you should be there or not huh? and you get in line and you're served a warm nutritious meal and you sit at a table um, and with silverware and everything. It's like eating at a restaurant, not a high-class restaurant, but, necess- but still a warm, nutritious meal. 
And that's the concept. And, and basically, I was hungry, and you gave me to, to eat. And that's on the wall to remind the, you know people. There's no proselytizing, not trying to preach to them. Okay, It's just that we, as a St. Martha's Parish, here we are. We're serving whoever needs to find food to eat. And so it's probably anywhere from 300 to maybe 375 people a day come in there. Roughly maybe 75,000 meals a year are served there. And it's very little uh, publicity about that. Um, You know, they have the Thanksgiving meal you know, at uh, George R. Brown, and they serve, what, 15, 20,000? I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, but we serve 75,000 in a year quietly, but it, that's Monday through Friday downtown. But what's amazing is that um, people volunteer for that um, from the parish. So every day there's a crew of parishioners that go down, usually about 20 or 25 volunteers they go, and they, they show up anywhere from like 10 o'clock in the morning, those who have to, it's a little earlier than that to help cook. Uh-huh. And, they're, uh, and then there's most of the ones are there to serve as the people come through they, to the lines. And then um, they prepare tea or coffee or water to drink. And then they have a place to receive the dirty dishes and so somebody is in there washing dishes afterwards and so forth. So 20 to 25 volunteers each day, and they kind of vie with each other who's the best team, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. <laughs> and so as a pastor, you have to go every day to visit them, not every day of the week, but make sure that you ever so often you go on Monday, then Sometimes go on Tuesday because each time you go, it's going to be a different group of volunteers. Um, and they ha- hold on to that because it's, it's kind of a sense of community. that They, they form a little community, and, and they enjoy just uh, having direct involvement in serving you know, the hungry. And um, so, like I said, it's been going on for about— 30 years, it's all volunteer other than there are two religious women that run the place, they're in charge of it, and we have two workers that we hire to do the the heavy maintenance, heavy cleaning, and all those kinds of things. But other than that, it's volunteers. And the reason we have volunteers is a good number of people at St. Martha were, were it, retired people, then they were looking for things that they could do that would be helpful to other people. Do you think we could start something like that here at St. Faustina? I'm sure you could. It would be just a matter of finding a place oh, yes. where the hungry would congregate. Mm. So that's why we built it downtown. There are a lot of people, the homeless come. It's not necessarily the homeless come there to eat, but uh, many of them do. And so, yeah, the you'd have to get a pretty good organization in. So the and we have a board of had a board of directors of that. We you know to to manage that because it's uh, it's a little different setup than just the past. I mean, you know, part of the parish. It's it mm-hmm. has its own board of directors to run it and so forth. Okay. And how long were you at St. Martha's? 
17 years. That was until? 19, I mean, excuse me, 2000 and, and uh, well, a couple of years ago. Huh? No, no, 2001. Yeah, 2001. 2001. Oh, excuse me. To 2018, excuse me. So well, 2001 until 2018. Yeah. Right. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at 2018, you went back to St. Mary's. When I retired, I looked at options and uh, the rector of the seminary asked me, he said, would you come and just live here uh -huh. and serve as, as a spiritual director for some of the students? And so I did that. But Father Dapp here at St. Faustina said, well, you're not do doing anything on the weekend. Would you come out here <laughs> to help me with masses? So that was the plan. I'd live at St. Mary's Seminary, mm -hmm. the part-time in spiritual direction, and then I started coming out here probably in September of 2018 to, to help out with masses here at St. Faustina. Mm -hmm. So what do you, I understand during your free time, you like to hunt. Is that something that you've done all your life? Ever since I was a kid. My dad was a hunter. Okay. And uh, oddly enough, most of my older brothers didn't do care for it too much. Oh, really? one, one did, but when I was about third or fourth grade, my dad would invite me to go hunting with them. And he would hunt ducks, geese. He would hunt squirrels and rabbits. So if he was hunting ducks, I would go with them, and I had to be, be real quiet. And if he shot a duck on the other side of the, the little lake or whatever, I was his dog that would, would <laughs> run over and get the duck and bring it back. So that was, and I enjoyed doing that. And uh, or if we went rabbit hunting, I would go get, pick up the rabbits. I didn't shoot a gun, but I walked with him, mm -hmm. and so I enjoyed that. I've always enjoyed the outdoors but uh so that's how it got started and when i was a kid i got my daisy red rider bb gun and started <laughs> shooting and enjoyed that but yeah nowadays i hunt uh white-tailed deer go to colorado to hunt elk uh, and i used to hunt ducks and geese but that's too difficult when you get older especially walking through mud and uh, yes. so forth. In fact, you know, I used to hunt some geese right here in this land that's called St. Right, right here. Well, this area, <laughs> <laughs> which used to be, you know, some rice fields, but you, you can't recognize them anymore. It's nothing but houses built up here. So, yeah, this wow. was a great place to hunt geese, yeah. So how how you find the time to do that with you know with your your work as a priest well when retiring when i was retiring that's what i looked for a place even like working at the seminary that like i could take three or four days off to go hunting or whatever when i was a pastor with that you look for kind of one of your weeks of vacation, you go do some deer hunting or go up to Colorado to do elk hunting. So you work it out as part of your your vacation time. Okay. And the other thing I did is that we, you know, we have a priest have a day off each week. Sometimes I would tell the other priest working there, I said, I'm going to stack up my days off and I'll take three this week and I'll work solid through the other 
three weeks. So because to go hunting, you know, you're going like whitetail hunting. Uh-huh. Uh, the first day, you're just kind of figuring out where the animals are, how okay. they're traveling, and you're looking at signs and so forth. It might be the second or third day that you really find out where the deer are that you're looking for. So it takes a while, and many times you don't kill anything because it, you, you're not there long enough to kind of find out where they are. You go with other priests, I understand. You have an annual trip? Is that correct? Several annual trips, yeah. Um, the Elkhart is a trip with a number of businessmen from Houston, Dallas area. And I go along to celebrate Mass for them on, on Sunday because they go over the weekend, Friday to Monday or Tuesday. And so there used to be a priest that went with them, and he he's deceased now. And so I got the invitation when he was no longer able to go. And um, so that's been something that I do. Didn't do it this year because of the pandemic, because we had to fly to, to Denver. Uh-huh. But um, I've done that for about maybe 10, 12 years, going to Colorado. Um, but the uh, annual trip with um, with some of the priests, uh, we, we've been doing this probably over 40 years. Wow. Um, you know, Monsignor Dan Scheel over at St. Jerome's and, and Father uh, Ben Smeistrela and a few of the other priests depends on when we get together. But this past year went up to or went down to um, to what we call the brush country, close to the border with Mexico, close uh-huh. to Eagle Pass. And so there were four of us: Father Monsignor Shio from Houston and and two priests from uh, Austin Diocese. We go there for for about a week. Four days, probably, for whitetail hunting. What else do you do with your free time when you're not able to go hunting? Well, usually, if it's not hunting, I do some fishing. Um, and fishing, you know, we're in Texas, close to the Gulf. You can go saltwater fishing, and you can go in one day. Or When I was a young priest, I would go to fish for largemouth bass. So. Oh, wow. There were places you could find that you could just walk the banks and fish and so forth. So that was a regular thing um, I would do. Um, other than that, I might take time off just to visit with friends. Uh, I have some, you know, being a priest for 53 years, I know a lot of people over the years. Um, and so I have some people that are retired now that live up on Lake Conroe or other places, I'll go visit them and sometimes spend a night and we'll, you know, go fishing in the evening at their place and get up in the morning and come back. So, Have you ever taken Father Dad or Father David Michael? I took Father David Michael one time to uh, close to Eagle Pass and has invited him several other times, but he hunts with his family. Okay. <laughs> and so he doesn't have time. Uh, I've not gone with Father Dat, but Father Dat has gone to hunt at the same place I hunt. Okay. Same ranch. So, How how does he like it? Has well, he said I, anything to you? He's, yeah, he likes it, but I'm not sure if he's into it like <laughs> I am. <laughs> so right now you're at St. Mary's, but every once in a while you come to St. Faustina. And it's been a bit of a challenge. Is that the is that the plan for the foreseeable future? 
Yes, at least until the end of the semester. Uh, because of the pandemic, we decided seminary. We wanted to try to maintain a bubble mm -hmm. for the students there so they could attend um, classes in person rather than uh, uh, virtual classes. Yes. And that's important. And so in order to kind of protect them, we decided as priests that we wouldn't go out to parishes so, and risk bringing in the, you know, you know, the virus in with us yes. to that community. And or so, spreading yeah. the virus to other parishes as right. well. That's correct. So we stay where we are right now. And uh, the only time I go out, you know, to, to parishes would be like a funeral or a wedding, something that's already planned and that we take all kinds of precautions for that. Of course. Uh, so right now, the idea is for me to stay at the seminary and work uh, through the end of the spring semester, and hopefully in May or June, I can come back and help here at St. Faustina. And we, we, we love having you here. Well, I enjoy coming back, too. You know, I was able to come back in December. Yes. Um, because the students were gone and from the seminary. They went home um, before Thanksgiving, so I was free to come here and even had Mass Christmas Day. Uh, but once we had students come back to the seminary, I went back there. So looking back on your time as a, as a priest, your time in the rectory, your time in the, what do you think is the, the biggest thing that you, you think about when you look back? You know, I think probably the most enduring memory or, or gift is the people I've met along the way. Yeah, it's unbelievable what a little kid from Grimes County, which I was born on the farm. I was a shy kid, as most of us were, and would not have visualized the life I've lived through the years. Huh? Um, I left that little farm, went to, you know, school, came to Houston to attend the seminary, went to Rome, studied with uh, seminarians from all over the world. Yes. Um, had the blessing to shake hands with Pope Paul VI, uh, shake hands with Pope John Paul II, uh, both of whom are now saints. Wow. I've traveled most of Europe. Uh, I've traveled into Central America, gone to South America for trips. I've, I've just, you know, I could not have imagined any of that, you know, even as a high schooler. Um, and so, and I've been privileged to meet so many significant people, um, like uh, people in the church and, you know, we, as a, Seminary rector, you have the opportunity to, to invite certain speakers and so forth to come and speak to the students. So uh, individuals like that or bishops that have been in the church and they have students that sent, you know come to the seminary to sit down with them and, and meet them and talk with them. And when I was rector, I would meet with rectors of the seminaries in the United States and Many of them are, are well-known, um, you know, um, 
for example, like Bishop Robert Barron, he was the rector of Mundelein Seminary. Well, I didn't meet him when he was rector. I met him, you know, through my work because um, he, he used to teach there before. So you get to meet people like that all over, and you look back on it and say, you know, what a privilege, what a blessing to have met uh, people. So I think the enduring gift has been the, the people I've met along the way and how they've influenced me, and hopefully maybe I've influenced a few of them as well. <laughs> so wh- how would you like people to remember you when they think about Father Borsky, mm-hmm. Monsignor Borsky, years from now, decades from now? That I was a caring priest. I was a caring pastor. Um, I think that's what the goal of the priesthood is, is to be a pastor, like the good pastor uh, described by Jesus himself and who Jesus was, the good pastor. But, uh, yeah, I think that's the main thing, most important thing for me. What advice do you have for anyone who's considering entering religious life? I would certainly say the main thing is to pursue it. Talk to someone that you trust, certainly your parents, friends, uh, a pastor in the parish. Maybe if you're going to school, someone that uh, is your teacher that you, you see as a mentor and talk to them about who you want to become, what you want to do. Um, because I think there's, um, is a lot of young people want to give their lives to make this a better world. Mm-hmm. And um, this is one important way to do that, especially, you know, if you have the faith, the foundation, your faith to do that. Uh, a lot of other people can serve other ways too. Uh, but uh, so I would encourage them to pursue it and take the risk. You know, when I went to the seminary, I didn't go there convinced that this is what I would do. I, I didn't know enough about it. As I said, I had never gone to a Catholic school before. Uh-huh. Uh, but as I lived the life as a seminarian, as I continued to go through my seminary training, it became like this is where I should be. You know, it, it, it fit me. And um, it's made all the difference in the world. Do you ever look back and have any regrets? Not any serious ones. Um, I would say certainly at the beginning when I entered the seminary was, can I do this um, as a celibate person rather than married? Um, my, you know, my brothers, old, I have four older brothers. They uh-huh. were, they all were married and had children. And I got to know my nieces and nephews. And that was kind of a desire that I had. I wish I could have, you know, children of my own type of thing and uh-huh. that kind of uh, loving atmosphere. But that was initial. And, and like I said, I, you know, once you get involved in life of the church and ministry, you get to know other people. In some ways, you, you have a lot of family. In other words, your parish family. Mm-hmm. And you get to have significant relationships with people. And I think one of the things that has sustained me in my, my uh, later years as a priest is, uh, is a group 
of uh, couples in um, St. Martha's. They, it's called uh, Teams of Our Lady. It's a group of just five or six married couples. They get together once a month to eat a meal, um, to share kind of the highs and lows of their life for the past month, and then to pray for each other and the needs that we have, um, and plus to to try to hold an image up for all of us to kind of live like Christ wants us to live. Uh-huh. They invited me to join their group when I first became pastor in 2001, and I have still do that every month with them. Uh, now we meet by Zoom. But, you know, one of the things is that they are very important to me as couples, you know. They support me in my priesthood. I support them in their married life. So sometimes you find a kind of a support group that can be your, if you will, like another family. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have shared a lot. We know each other very well, those uh, six couples. In fact, one of those couples has moved here to St. Faustina. Oh, that's nice. And um, so they have left the group. Because they, they don't want you know they have chosen not to go back to Kingwood uh-huh. uh, for the meetings. But right now, while we're in the Zoom, they still participate just like I do. So, but I, I even before the pandemic, I would go back to to their the monthly meetings. I maybe miss one or two meetings a year, but that's significant for me. So, I think everybody has to find some means of you know support so that you can continue to live your life and and find meaning in it and for me that uh, that's a group of six couples is my principal support group what was the most difficult thing for you during your years as a priest probably the most difficult thing was probably the first five or six years of my priesthood um because what happened in the changes of vatican II was that a lot of priests decided, well, I don't want to continue living my life being a a celibate. I want to get married. And there was kind of some hope that as things would change in the the church, the church would also allow priests to get married. Uh And so we would go to some of the gatherings of, of clergy and you would hear, well, so Father So and So left, and he's getting married. You know, two a year from now or so. Uh-huh. That was tough because you kind of had to say they're leaving. You know, it, it impacts you because you're friends with them, you've yes. seen them, and and sometimes they were very outstanding priests with great gifts to pre- to teach or preach or whatever. But you know, you live through that. Um, but that that was difficult. Like I said, the first four, five, six years of my priesthood. Was there anything that um, that was difficult during your entire time? Anything that you found that you had to deal with? Not in a sense that it would cause me to stop and think, why did I become a priest? But certainly mm-hmm. the, the scandals of the, you know, what's happened to some priest of abuse and so forth, that's embarrassing and it's not uplifting for anybody. And not so much that it happened, it's terrible that it happened, but uh-huh. 
having to have to respond to other people. You know, why did that happen when no one really knows what happened? And it, it's kind of like, you know, you're a priest. Why do, you know, you're supposed to live an exemplary life. Why yes. did this happen? Well, I don't know why it happened. So I don't have a real good explanation to people. But I mean, that's a, you know, a difficulty, but it's not something that caused me to. How do you deal with that, hearing those stories? Well, I know some of the guys. And, that know, must make it even more difficult. Even more difficult. And um, you you certainly pray for them. I have their names. I wrote the names in my my Liturgy of Hours book, the, our prayer book that we as priests have. And uh-huh. so I just, it's, I got a sheet of paper there where I pray for them. Uh-huh. And, uh, and some of them are deceased now um, that did that. I, um, I scratch my head and wonder. What happened? Um, how did they do this? And certainly I pray for victims because I've also had to deal with victims uh-huh. in a parish or where someone came to me and said they were, you know, abused wow. by a priest. And uh, and so that's not an easy thing to do. Does, um, it, does it really hurt you when you hear these? Oh, sure. It, it, it causes a lot of pain because you, you can't really give an ad- adequate explanation to someone who's hurting and they have to live as a victim, they have to live with that pain for the rest of their lives. Yes. Um, and you know, why was, why did that happen? And I don't have a, you know, good ex- explanation other than it did. And you try to listen carefully to in their story and try to provide as much understanding and support to them. But uh, yeah, it's, it, there's no good, or easy way to respond to that. I I can't imagine how difficult it must be mm-hmm. for you, especially since you said you knew some of mm-hmm. these priests. Did you have any clues or anything like that? Or for the ones that I didn't deal with in the seminary, um, very little clues. Uh-huh. Um, maybe a few hints here and there that you wouldn't think about when it happened, right? And looking back, said, okay, now that probably was what was happening. Uh, one in particular that went, went through our seminary, I had questions about his thing. In fact, I did ask him to leave the seminary, and he went to another seminary. Oh, wow. And was ordained. So, yeah, I have, in fact, uh, that I have a lot of information. I know, but it was nothing, but I know that happened with him when he was in our seminary had nothing to do with abuse of of minors, but that's kind of where it led. But uh, I didn't, I never witnessed that. So you find it hard being a priest when these things come out? Oh yes. I mean, it's not easy to hear that and it's not easy to have that in the news. You know, I would, I would compare it to a policeman, you know, a uh, policeman who's accused of shooting someone um, simply because they were disorderly or in their opinion they were disorderly, then the public would see this as is uh, you know callousness and just you know sh- shooting somebody without justification and and I know a lot of policemen, you know uh-huh. um, so they have to bear the same burden when they wear that uniform. Yes. And go out and serve the public and someone's kind of questioning or, 
are you a good policeman or are you a bad one type of thing? And same thing with, you know, a priest, you know, you, you are a public figure, you represent the church. And yet some, some guys have not represented Christ as, you know, as a priest. So yeah, it hurts and it's not easy to, to deal with. Um, but I think it's 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 an invitation for us to live our our priestly commitment with with even more conviction that uh, this is what Christ has called us to to do and who He's called us to become. We thank you so much for you know every day you know coming in and and living that life. Thank you. Is there something that after all these years you look at the church and all the changes from when you were young? As a as a seminarian, as a young priest, going through the rectory, is there is there anything that you think needs to change in the church in the way that we do things? Well, I imagine there are a number of things, but I think the main thing that I would say <clears throat> we need to be creative to allow. Catholics to experience their faith in a very small, like small groups. And we can't do that with celebrating Mass because there are not enough priests. But there, we have to be creative in, in allowing people to experience their faith and share that faith with other Catholics because that's what builds their faith. And that's what gives them the ability to share their faith and then see the need to to give their lives in service to others, you know, like the ones that serve at Martha's Kitchen at the soup uh-huh. kitchen. You know, one of those means is like act retreats uh, that we, we can't have now during the pandemic, but it has to be more than that. Something more intimate. Right. And Not just a large mass. That's, that's what you're correct. saying. Right, and do that on a regular basis, whether it's once a month or whatever. Now, there are a lot of programs that introduce that, but to be able to maintain that as a way of of, of life, because it, it's amazing when people discover their faith and the meaning of that faith and how it's meant that they discover their their gifts and share their gifts with others, uh, especially beyond their families. And in doing so, they build up the parish or they build up their their community. Uh, that's where your faith comes alive. And, and you know, it's, it, as a priest, I've met so many people that have done that. Huh? You just wish there was an opportunity for more people mm. to experience that and, yes. and develop and grow, grow their faith. Is there anything about you that people, most people don't know? <laughs> A little bit of trivia on Monsignor Borski. Not sure. Um, uh, I've shared a few things. One that I was, you know, I was really shy as a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, I can remember as a small child, even my relatives coming over to visit, I would hide behind the couch <laughs> or behind my mother. I mean, I'm talking like I was a four or five year old kid, I was very shy and it took me 30 minutes to an hour to feel comfortable to come out of my hiding, to be with people (laughs) and then to be from the shy kid to being a a public person in the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Uh, 
I've shared about being delivered. My birth, I was delivered by a midwife at home rather uh-huh. than in the hospital. A lot of people don't even know that. I guess another thing that people don't know, uh, when I was in elementary school, we moved because we were farmers and we moved to different farms to th- to, to uh, make a living from my, uh, from my father. We moved to a little place called Courtney. Texas, where most people don't even know where Courtney is, but it's very close to Navasota, off okay. of Highway 6 going towards A&M from Houston. Um, when I moved to Courtney, we I moved from um, uh, Navasota School Elementary School, where there were at least two or three grade, I mean, classes in each grade. Like if we were, I was in the third grade, so there were three third grades in Navasota School at the time. Okay. So I show up at a new school at Courtney, and it was a one-room schoolhouse, one teacher uh, there uh, teaching, and she had five grades, first to the fifth. And uh, it was, but I went there, um, I made pretty good grades, but I wasn't really that interested in making good grades. My writing was so-so. When I go back and look at things I wrote, first, second, third grade, I could barely read my writing. So she instilled in me a a pride in writing well, and I can still do that today. Um, Spelling. But the fact that I had to move into a setting where she taught, like the first graders, they came or sat around her desk. And I said at my at the other four classes, we sat at our desk, did our homework. Uh-huh. So to experience education in a one-room schoolhouse, which is no longer around in wow. almost any part that I know of in Texas, uh-huh. uh, I don't think people would know that. And yet, I would have to say that's probably the most significant learning uh, in in education, school education I've ever had. She taught me the importance of wanting to learn and desiring to learn. She taught me how to be a student. And, to, and she was, her name was uh, Mrs. Vera Johnson. She was a good Baptist lady. And I was a Catholic, and yet she was, you know, she respected us as, as Catholics. And it was, an, it was an area where there were not that many Catholics around. So, it, you know, it was, that's a special Thing that probably people would know, but it's very significant in my life. So. Do you have any secret talents that people don't know about? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that good at singing or music. I you hum don't along tap and dance or anything no, like no. that. <laughs> <laughs> not that I could uh, recall that I've done. No. So, looking back at your career as a priest and like you said, early on, you had difficulty um, grasping with the idea that you would be celibate your entire life. Do you ever look back and have any regret or look at, you know, some of your contemporaries who have grandchildren or great grandchildren? I'll answer it in this way. <clears throat> when I was already my 10th anniversary of graduating from high school, I was already a priest uh-huh. and out. And so I helped organize um, reunion, 10 year reunion of our high school classmates. 
So we graduated from Hempstead High School, a small uh, high, a town high school. I went back for that. And I looked around me, and I saw my classmates still basically where they were when I left 10 years ago. Not that they were bad. Uh-huh. My life had changed so tremendously just from where I, what I was exposed to in seminary and going to Rome and so forth. Uh-huh. And the struggles they had just of remaining married, you know, some, many of them were divorced. In fact, one of the classmates that I, that I uh, dated at one time when I was a junior going into the senior, she's in her, you know, with a third husband already wow. type of thing. So when I look at all those things, um, you know, yes, I certainly considered marriage at that time. Uh, but in many ways, I've grown so much because I've been asked, you know, God has stretched me. And, and, and also, as I said earlier, the relationships I had with, with men and women throughout you know, my experience as a priest in parishes and working with staffs and the travels I've done. So none of that would have been possible had you absolutely not. So shaking the hands of a couple of popes, (laughs) future saints. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is, yeah, you, you make sacrifices and they seem huge to make, but there's really blessings that come. And sometimes you don't always see the blessings until much later. How many popes have you been through as during your wow. career? As a, I have to count that. Uh, pope Pius Twelfth, John the 23rd, um, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 1st, John Paul the 2nd, Benedict, and now Francis. Huh? Seven popes yeah. during your career. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories. Okay. I, I could sit down with you for hours and hours, but thank you. But you know, this does have to come to an end at some point and we hope to see you here more. Uh, after all of this is over here at St. Faustina, do you have any last words that you'd like to share? Well, just to thank St. Faustina parishioners. They've been so warm and welcoming me. And so many have sent me readings at, Christmas and and when I was able to come back just in December to for so many of them that came to say hello to me so I miss being able to come out here and I want to thank them for my lo- for their love and I do look forward to returning and helping Father Dad and Father David M- Michael Moses here at St Faustina hopefully in May or maybe June we'll see how it works out thank you do you feel, uh, one last thing that sure. I forgot to get to, do you feel a certain connection to St. Faustina Parish since I believe, if I'm not mistaken, your parents are, are from Polish descent? Well, the the connection to St. Faustina maybe is not so much to the Polish connection. Uh-huh. I've met a few people that are certainly of Polish descent. Um, but... I think it's just the, the, the hospitality and the warm welcome that I've received from everyone. Thank you so much. You're it's welcome. It's been awesome having you. Okay. God bless. Thank you. You too. All right.